Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, both here and online. Uh, I want to say what a blessing it is for me to be standing at the back and singing along with my brothers and sisters and hearing brothers and sisters in the faith all singing about the worthiness of our Lord, of the greatness of our Lord, and of the amazing things that he has done. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses, so I encourage you to turn there so you can follow along, and let's read again Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them there and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master Simon replied, We've worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you'll be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Would you pray with me this morning? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be as these disciples here in this passage that we would see your amazing works in our world and that we would leave anything and everything and follow you. That we would follow you wholeheartedly, forsaking all that would tear us away from you. Lord, I thank you for each one of my brothers and sisters here today, and I thank you that we can sing to you without fear of reprisal, that we have such safety to do so. May we take advantage of this and do it as often as we can. Heavenly Father, I think of those who cannot gather here together today for one reason or another. Um, we pray that they would find means of encouragement and growth in their spiritual walk and that we as a church would find ways to reach out to them. Lord, I pray particularly for my brothers and sisters who are not here because they are working to care for their families. Lord, it is such a difficult tightrope to walk between caring for our families and being able to be here on Sundays. And Lord, we, we know that for many of these, it is, it is a very hard thing not being able to be here together as a family. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage these brothers and sisters. You would provide means for them to worship together with fellow believers. And we thank you for the means that we have in doing the electronic version here so that they can at least listen to what is said and join together somewhat with the worship. And Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is capable of using these things. So we pray that even as these things go out over the, over the airwaves and onto the internet, Lord, we pray that you would use these things for your glory and for even the salvation of souls who would hear your gospel preached from this pulpit this morning. Lord, I thank you for the message that has been crafted for this morning's sermon. Thank you for all of the hours of hard work that's gone into it and the work of your Holy Spirit to guide and direct Pastor Jim as he attempts to faithfully exposit the truths of your word. I pray that he would bring these truths in a way that we can understand and that our hearts would be prepared to receive them and make changes in our lives because of them. Lord, as we have experienced the smoke coming again here this week, we think of those who are out fighting these fires, the 
firefighters and other first responders who were out there and many of them unable to gather with their congregations for worship and many of them still lost without you. Lord, we pray you would keep them safe, bring them back to their, their families, both church families and physical families, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would bring rain to quench our dry and thirsty land. And Lord, we thank you that we know that we have a God who is the Lord of all things in creation, that none of this is outside of your control, that we can trust you and have faith in you that all of these things fit into your plan somehow. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for each one that has been a part of the service and pray that you would continue to use this service for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you see in the screen behind me that the uh, message today is from the Gospel of John. I invite you to turn there, Gospel of John, chapter 21. And it doesn't take uh, much to realize that we're uh, closing in on the final uh, words of this gospel. We've been here for quite a while, and I think it, you deserve, those of you who have been uh, faithful in your attendance and sitting under the ministry of this word, I think you deserve three gold stars for patience, because this morning is the 85th sermon in the Gospel of John. And uh, it's been both a delight and a challenge for me to unpack what is similar to the gospel in that a child can understand the gospel, but it'll take eternity and then some to fully comprehend the gospel. Likewise, the gospel of John is often uh, given to people who are children in the faith as a wonderful uh, gospel to read initially to get to know the Christian faith. But I have found that it is filled with complexities and mysteries, and it is something that one could uh, think about and study for ages and still not reach the depths. Chapter 21, as I explained the last time I spoke, is an epilogue. The prologue is chapter 1. It starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then the epilogue is chapter 21. The epilogue is simply the last word. It's a, it's a useful tool for writers and, and those who portray events. Years ago, and I can't think of the name of the show, my family used to like watching a particular show where a group of people would come together and build a new house for a worthy family. And uh, you'd watch that and the house would be finished and the family would move in with all the joy and happiness. And then before the show ended, there was an epilogue. It showed what they were doing then, maybe a year later, how things were working out for them. So an epilogue serves the writer in very specific ways. The latter part of chapter 21 helps us understand the question, well, what happened to Peter? Remember Peter in the courtyard at night, warming himself at a fire, looking over at a house where Jesus is there, and the cock crows, and Jesus turns and looks at him? Remember that, Peter? Wonder what's going to happen to him. So John writes an epilogue to show us, well, 
Here's what Jesus thinks of Peter now. That's going to be great to get into that part of the text. What about the author himself? He's the last remaining apostle when he wrote this. He wrote this uh, a generation later after the death of Christ. He wrote it to scattered Jews uh, around Asia Minor. Well, what's, what's to become of John? He answers that question. But first and foremost, he's going to answer, and this is the consensus of my study, the point that you ought to be hearing through the next half hour. The first part of chapter 21, the author is answering the question, what are we to make of all this evidence that I've now brought to you? Thinking particularly of the first reader, what are you to make of all this evidence? I have just gone through 19 English Bible uh, chapters of evidence that Jesus is the Christ. How, How are you supposed to respond to that? And so let's read John 21, 1 to 14, and, uh, and then we will pray, and I will seek by God's grace to unpack this uh, for our edification and for our joy. John 21, uh, 1 to 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And there's at least a half a dozen people listening right now. It says, good answer. Good answer. They went out and got into a boat, into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, and so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Our God and Father, we bow humbly before your holy word. We ask, Father, that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things contained herein, that you would incline our hearts to see and understand the glories of our Savior, that you would encourage us today in this message, that we leave this place strengthened in our faith, 
fortified in our belief and ready to share the gospel with those who are in desperate need of it today. Father, help us, we pray. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, the first task of biblical interpretation is the task of observation. When we read any account of Scripture, we should read it with an eye to observe some of the distinctives and some of the uniqueness about the passage. I found four, four distinct observations about this story, and they're important because they push us towards understanding the interpretation of the story, uh, the application of the story. If you had read this, you must have immediately said, this story sounds familiar. Did, do you not think that? This story sounds familiar. And one of the reasons I asked Pastor Josh to read Luke chapter 5 is because that's what is familiar. This sounds like an event very similar to an event at a time before Christ was raised when he told the disciples to cast on the other side. They, they caught so many fish, and, and Peter recognized uh, his own state before the Savior. So the first thing you would say is, this is a very familiar story. In fact, someone might say, is this a duplication? But then you would see some differences and say no. But it's very familiar. At the end of the story, John puts a time stamp on the story, and that's unique. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the third time. Now, it's not the third time he was revealed. You'll remember he revealed himself alone to Mary and to Peter and the two men on the road to Emmaus, but this was the third time to a group of disciples. And so there must be some benefit that John wants us to see. What was the benefit that was going on here that he would say this is the third time he was revealed to the disciples. The third observation I make, and, and of course we just read it quickly and you didn't have the time to, to meditate on it as I do, did, but in 14 verses, three times John uses the word appearance in the NIV or uh, revealed in the ESV. In other words, Whenever a Hebrew author particularly repeats something, there's something important in there. Jesus was revealed. He was revealed. In fact, <clears throat> the, first, the second time John uses the word is incredibly significant. And the, the reader may easily pass over it. And I don't want us to do that. Notice verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed or appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or could, other places it's called the Sea of Galilee. And notice this. He revealed himself in this way. Right away we say, the way Jesus is revealing himself is really important. It's just not that he did. It's how he did it. And lastly, and just as importantly, in verse 4 and in verse 12, we have an editorial comment by the Apostle John. Now, I've taught you before that when you read your Bible, when the inspired author enters in and makes a comment himself, 
that is incredibly important. That comment is more important than a spirit-filled preacher. That comment is more important than Matthew Henry. That comment is more important than probably the top expositor on the Gospel of John, Dr. D.A. Carson. That comment is more important than anything because the Holy Spirit himself has told the author, insert this, told is not a good word, inspired the author, insert this comment. In verse 4, the comment is, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood by the shore, and then notice this, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. That's a comment that the author has shared with us so we get a better insight. He said, Jesus, this man, Jesus, appeared on the shore, but the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And in verse 14, is it? Or 12, I should say. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? <laughs> they knew it was the Lord. There's something going on here. How did we know what the disciples were thinking? Answer, John knew. He was there. And he's telling us. It's, it's his comment. It's, it's, he's, he's, he's giving us insight into what's happening. Now, the reason I share those four observations is to come to the point of the story. And I'm going to give you the point of the story, then I'm going to explain it. The point of the story, I believe, is that the way, the emphasis, the way Jesus reveals himself, that he is the risen Lord, is by doing a miracle similar to what he did when he, before he rose from the dead. Okay? The way Jesus revealed himself that he was the risen Lord was by doing a similar miracle that he did before he died and was buried and rose again. And that's what I believe John wants us to understand. That's what's going on here. You know the word en Francais, déjà vu. Lucille does. She just waved at me and said, yeah. <laughs> I've been there. Thank you, for Thank you for helping us. Yeah, I've seen this before, right? That's what we use, the word deja vu. I've seen this before. I've already seen this. I can't say that it's ever happened to me, but I hear that sometimes people will go somewhere and, and uh, they'll think, it's, it, I, I've been here. I, I've seen this. I've experienced this. I don't know where. We call it deja vu. Now, in Matthew 28, Jesus, Matthew tells us that these disciples were sent by Jesus up to Galilee, from Judea up to Galilee. Jesus said to them, you go to Galilee to a mountain and that's where you go, and I will meet you there. We also learn in Matthew 28, verse 7, that Jesus went ahead of them. He was already there. I don't know where he was during this story, but he was there in that area. Remember, he's the post-resurrected, glorified Savior. Nothing is known about where Jesus was. But these disciples obey, and they go up to Galilee. And John records that seven out of 11 of them are in a group, and they follow the leadership of Peter. When Peter says, I'm going fishing, and they say, we're going too. Now, there's nothing in this story, by the way, whereby we can assume that Peter's doing anything wrong. There's absolutely nothing 
in this story to suggest that Peter is in disobedience or doing anything wrong. In fact, the opposite occurs, that Peter seems to be in great favor with the Lord and the disciples do too, and he's going to call them children. Yeah, I'm going to comment on that in a minute. Now, that sets this message apart from apparently about 50% of Bible teachers and expositors and preachers. There are many, many people that will preach this text and beat up Peter. I remember going to a missions conference one time and having a good old missionary guilt laid on me because uh, I, we were all like Peter. We're supposed to be out winning souls for Christ, and we've gone fishing. Well, let me say with more assurance than most things I say like this, there's nothing in this text to suggest Peter and the disciples are doing one thing wrong. They're doing what they're doing. They're waiting for Jesus to appear. So if you're a fisherman, I don't know, I'm guessing here, maybe you would, especially if your boat, Peter's boat is parked right there, at the marina on, Saint, um, on the Gal- Lake of Galilee, you probably say, I'm going fishing. And they did. They went fishing. And they fished all night. These were professional fishermen. They fished all night and caught nothing. Why they fish at night? Well, apparently the fish in the, the, the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, whichever name you want, uh, the fish at night come up to the cooler water. And of course, if you're a net fisherman, as you throw your net and it envelops the fish, that's when you catch the fish. As the morning comes, as the heat rises, the fish go down deeper in the water. And of course, you can't catch them by a net. That's why they were fishing at night. At dawn, when they're coming in about 100 yards from shore, Jesus calls to them and says, children, do you have any fish? He uses children in a very family way. He's using in a very warm and affectionate way. I can imagine a a daddy who's making breakfast at a campground, and the family's out playing and stuff, and when the bacon and eggs are ready, yells, okay, family, it's time to eat. It's, it, 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 there's a, it's very specific. It's very affectionate. They didn't know it was Jesus. Think of it. Put yourself in the boat. Feel the waves splash a bit. This man calls from the shore, did you catch any fish? And you say, no, we fished all night. And they didn't know who they were talking to. Remember the word deja vu? Here it comes. Cast the net on the right side and you will find some. Now they responded obediently and cast the net on the right side. They could hardly drag it in. And John is so particular about his evidence to his reader, he says there was 351. That means there was 351. There wasn't 350. There was 351 fish. And then the light went on. Then the light went on. Deja vu. I've seen this before. This feels like a place I've been in before. And the author goes, what? It is the Lord. (laughs) Bingo. And he turns to Peter and says, it is the Lord. And Peter said, it is the Lord. And Peter did what Peter did the first time and jumped in the lake and ran to Jesus. This was the Christ. This was the Messiah. This was our rabbi. This was our master. This was our teacher. You see, Jesus intentionally designed this, may I call it, 
deja vu moment. This was intentionally designed by our Savior so that these disciples who might be still, and they were still wondering, is this really Jesus? Jesus says, I'm going to recreate a scenario, and they will get it. I've been there before. Deja vu. When the disciples gathered with Jesus to accept his invitation for breakfast, John, as I said, makes this commentary. None of them dared ask you, ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. That's a strange comment. You might wonder, I hope you do wonder, why, why did he say it that way? They dared not ask him who he was. They knew it was the Lord. Let me tell you something I, that the Bible seems to rep- teach us. There was something different about the post-resurrection glorified body of Jesus. There was something different. I have no way of telling you what was different, but it was different. Jesus stood post-resurrection, risen, glorified, beside Mary. And she looked at him and thought it was the gardener. What changed her mind? His looks? No. He said, Mary. Mary. Only one person talks to me like that, Mary was thinking. (laughs) There's only one person that says my name that way. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? There's people like that in my life. As I was preparing this message, I kept hearing my dad's voice. Hamish, there's only one person that could say that to me, and I knew who it was. There's something different about Jesus. There's something unique about his post risen, glorified body that Mary stood there and didn't know it was Jesus, but when he said, Mary, she knew and fell at his feet. This same Jesus walked, I don't know how long, long enough to unpack the Old Testament to two men on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't know who he was. They didn't have a clue who he was. He explained to them all the things in the law and the prophets pertaining to Jesus, the Messiah. And they didn't know who it was. But they said to him, will you come and dine at our house? Will you eat at our house? And Jesus accepted the invitation, and he went and ate at their house. And then the Scripture says in Luke 24 that when he blessed the food and broke the bread, they knew it was Jesus. There's only one human being, divine human being as he is, that could pray and break the bread like Jesus. And they knew it was the Lord. There's something different about Jesus. This man calls on the Sea of Tiberias Children, have you caught any fish? They didn't know who it was. But when he said, cast your net on the other side, and 350 fish willingly by their own free will jumped into the lake, into the net, John went, it is the Lord. (laughs) And Peter went, it is the Lord. Deja vu. You see, brothers and sisters, and this is where I'm bringing this in for a landing. I'm saying that in case Rob listens to this sermon so he doesn't say, Jim, you said I'm closing five times. I think it's safer to say I'm bringing this in for a landing. The point that John wants us to know is the evidence contained in the Gospels, confirms that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. 
That's what he wants us to know. We recognize Jesus based on evidence. The evidence was irrefutable. The evidence was uncontestable. He's saying to you and I this morning in Elk Point Baptist Church, he's saying, trust the evidence. I bring your attention to what we had studied many months ago in John 10 when Jesus is speaking to unbelieving Jews. This is what he says in John 10, 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John, over the last 19 chapters, has gathered a literal mountain of evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And now in the epilogue, he's pointing out through this lesson Trust the evidence. He's saying to that young man in Asia Minor somewhere who's reading this gospel, who only has heard of Jesus, this is now 50 years or 40 years after the death of Jesus, this man is reading this gospel and he's saying, look, trust the evidence. You've heard it from me before, but I need to repeat it. You need to understand that Christianity is an evidence-based faith. You will hear people talk about taking a blind leap of faith. That has nothing to do with the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not wishful thinking. The Christian faith is not some hopeful thinking. The Christian faith is not positive thinking. The Christian faith is not faith in faith. The Christian faith is based on evidence. Historical, solid evidence. And that's what John is delivering to his readers. I can't repeat that sentence without thinking of the now famous book by Josh McDowell. The title alone says it all, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I hope you've read it at least once in your life. This is the Christian faith, evidence that demands a verdict. Can you not picture in your sanctified imagination John presenting the evidence to his readers and saying, there's the evidence, now you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. Now, I think for the most part, I get to address people who are my brothers and sisters. You have made that decision. You have realize that Jesus is the Christ and you've believed in him and you've come to faith in him. So how do I shape this application for you and I? And the answer is most of you, if not all of you, live and work with people who are unbelievers. And my encouragement to you today and I want it to be an encouragement. I want you to leave here fortified and strengthened in this truth that you do not believe in a faith that is some hairy, fairy, fantasy, blind leap into the dark abyss. The Christian faith is an evidence-based faith. It's objective. It's knowable. It's measurable. It rests on clear and precious promises of God's Word. 
It is not fuzzy, wuzzy. It is not a fantasy. Why do I say this? Why is there some passion in me to say this? Because brothers and sisters of mine in this church have told me, and I feel sometimes the same way. I identify this with you. That when you get talking to a person who's not a Christian, you kind of feel overwhelmed. And you feel passive and you back off. And I'm here this morning based on John 21, 1 to 14, to encourage you that you do not have to feel that way. The fact of the matter is you have the upper hand. You have the evidence that other people do not have. I don't do this often, but I want to close with giving you uh, five areas of evidence you have. If you like to take notes, you might want to write this down. If you don't, it'll be on the website. I've used the word as an acrostic, cards. Why? I have no idea. It just works for me. Cards, like Christmas cards or other cards. So if you think of the word cards, the first letter is C. The first thing I want you to know as my brothers and sisters in Christ, C means closeness. Closeness. Do you realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written at a time when the generation that Jesus lived and ministered in was still alive? Closeness. Years ago, when we used to have a paper in Elk Point, want to hear my rant, talk to me later about that. And our lovely editor, Vicki Brooker, used to include a history of Elk Point or an area in the paper. Do you all remember that at all? Remember that? Now, what would you think if... Uh, Vicki wrote an article on a historical event that took place back in the 50s or 60s with people still alive today who experienced that. If she wrote anything wrong, don't you think somebody would say, hey, hey, you made a mistake? That never happened. Three of the four Gospels were written at the time, in the generation that people lived. And if any one of them had said something that was wrong, somebody would have raised the alarm. They didn't. So closeness. The second is accuracy. Of these four Gospels, only these Gospels, there are over 5,000 manuscripts that confirm the same evidence. The difference in manuscriptual evidence is so minor, it nothing of the content is ever changed. I would invite any philosophy, ancient philosophy, to bring to light 5,000 manuscripts, all pointing to the same accuracy of truth. You have the closeness of the Gospels. You have the accuracy of the Gospels. You have the reliability of the Gospels. Now, thirdly, today, in the 20th century, every scholar of, of any repute, when he or she looks at the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus says this. The resurrection of Jesus is the only reliable affirmation that he did rise from the dead. All other options are off the table. 
I'll tell you who explains that in a minute. Men like Christopher Hitchens who look at the world and say things like this. Everything I see points to a grand design in the world, but I don't believe it. That's the kind of integrity of non-Christian scientists. They look at the facts around Judea and the historical facts, and they say this, quote, the resurrection of Jesus is the only reasonable explanation, but I don't believe it. You have the upper hand in an argument like that. You look at a person who says that and say, what? It's reliable. The D, I use the word dispute. In 400 years of church history, there wasn't one fact disputed about the Gospels. Now think of that. The Gospels were written. They were promulgated around the known world. John dies. Post-apostolic leaders now come into the church. The church spreads out. For 400 years, there's not a single statement by anyone who says something was wrong about Luke's writing, something was wrong about Matthew's writing. You hear what I'm saying? There was just no dispute in the first 400 years. And the S stands for secular. Secular ancient historians all validate the reality of Jesus of Nazareth teaching and doing miracles, dying and claiming to rise from the dead. All secular historians. Of note is the Jewish historian Josephus who clearly identifies the reality of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and did miracles and taught and was killed and was executed. And then he adds in his history book, and his disciples claim he rose from the dead. The Christian faith is an evidence-based faith. As I close, I want you to write down, remember a name. And the name is Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R, Mass, M-A-S. If he writes something, read it. He's got a website, look at it. And you'll read his research. He's world-acclaimed expert on the life of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And he has amassed so much evidence, it will throw you for a loop. And I only suggest that because I believe that we as Christians at Elk Point Baptist Church ought to stop being passive, stop falling back, Stop looking at the overwhelming response to us by non-Christians and say, hey, and give them the evidence. John, I am certain, wanted his readers to realize that his faith that he was communicating was an evidence-based faith. And in the words of Josh McDowell, it demands a verdict. And thus, he was to say in the previous chapter, I write these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in his name, you will have eternal life. Men and women, I say that to you this morning. I say that to you who are watching online. The evidence is in. It is clear that Jesus is the Christ. And now it requires a verdict from you. And you will make a choice. 
If you're here this morning in this auditorium and you're not a believer, you will make a choice before you leave here. You'll either choose to reject the evidence or you'll choose to accept the evidence and you'll fall on your knees and you will say, Jesus is the Christ and he's my Lord. Christianity is an evidence-based faith. That's the message. Will you stand with me as we pray? Thank you, Father, that you've left no doubt in our minds. Thank you, Father, that you've left no turn, no rock, uh, not turned. There's, there's, there's nothing that you've hidden from us. We have sufficient proof that this one who was born in Bethlehem as a child, this one who grew up and lived and walked and talked in Palestine, in Galilee, this one who did amazing miracles, this one who spoke in a way that even those who were against him said, I've never heard someone speak with such authority. This one who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He did it. And he appeared to multitudes of witnesses who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, resurrection, resurrection body. Lord, you have left nothing and the evidence is in. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in the lives of men and women and boys and girls who are listening today, that they will realize that they can't sit on the fence anymore, can't waver between two opinions. The facts are irrefutable. You are Lord. So, Father, take this word and cause it to encourage your saints. I pray that each one would leave here with a head a little bit higher, their steps a little bit stronger, their, their wills a little bit more fortified, and they will realize that they don't have to hide what they believe. And they will speak with Holy Spirit-filled authority to those who question them. And they will speak with grace and love. So now, Father, we hear your benediction to your church. And you say to us, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.